Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Davis Killian, joined by Anthony McDaniels, and we're here to bring you some, well, fresher analysis on some new stories, some of the wackier stories in the world of energy. Sure, we get a little bit informal, but we're trying to get that noodle working, those gears turning, and hopefully you walk away today with a little bit more insight. What are you thinking, Anthony? Are you pretty excited for these stories? Oh, yeah, just another crazy world of energy. Wacky, 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 wacky. I mean... Oh, man, you know, markets open up today, Monday, June 13th, everything's selling off, markets <laughs> selling everything, everything's in the red, oil's hanging out $120. <laughs> yeah, US. it's a bit foreboding, but what have we got in terms of stories? We've got some, actually, Ukraine's calling some shots in terms of energy, right? Yeah, I know. This one is uh, came out June 8th, um, an oil price article titled, Ukraine to halt, halt, coal, oil, gas exports ahead of critical winter. Halt. Yeah, that's some definitive language right there. Yep. Yep. Anticipating, and this is from the article here, anticipating a winter season defined by severe energy crisis, Ukraine will halt all exports of coal, natural gas, and oil, Ukrainian President Zelensky said in an address to the nation. On Wednesday, so this would have been last week or the week before he did this address. Not entirely sure. Article came out June 8th. Either way, it was recently. It was this month. Uh, Ukraine produces natural gas, crude oil, and coal, but domestic demand exceeds supply by approximately 35%, according to the IEA. This winter, Zelensky said, will be the most difficult in Ukraine's history since independence from the Soviet Union and all energy resources will be diverted for domestic consumption. Oh, boy. So I guess Europe's not going to get any uh, coal or oil, sweetheart, set shipments for all of the uh, wep- weapons that they're sending over for them. Huh? I, I guess, mean, you know, how much could Ukraine really supply in the first place? I mean, after worrying about themselves, I would be pretty blown away if they had enough to make a difference to send out. Yeah. Yeah, you got to remember, though, that Ukraine is also a massive transportation hub, given its proximity and its location geographically. Mm-hmm. So before all this chaos started, you had a bunch of lines basically coming from Russia to get to Europe. A lot of stuff went around the territory or through the territory of, of the Ukraine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you just got all kinds of problems and shooting and this and that and all these things are happening and things could get worse. They may not be done by the, either way. The point is. In a world that we already have very little ample excess supply for anybody, if there's excess supply for anybody at all, uh, we have another country saying we expect a tough winter. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, most everyone from what I've read is we may not have any spare winter. energy. Mm-hmm. So basically, Ukraine, again, is just another country in the mix that they're not going to have any excess energy. And it's not like they're very confident that they're going to have easy access to secure supplies from other sources this, this winter, right? This is going to be a problem globally with energy supplies. You know, I'll tell you one thing. I believe the American voters, if they had to choose between, you know, having gas to heat their own homes here or sending it overseas to help a block of countries that couldn't defend themselves and let themselves lay the bed for decades to become dependent on somebody who's now using that dependence against them. 
I just don't see the average American really being all rah, 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 let's send all of our energy to Europe if they can't heat their own houses, if they can't pay their own energy bills. Mm -hmm. They are not going to be very happy with, well, let's just send all. It's fine to send it if you've got the excess, but if you don't, that's a whole different conversation. And I just don't, I just don't think the average American is going to, you go on and you raise energy prices. You let them most, you let let those most prices go higher and higher so that people get more and more hit in the pocketbook and then come winter time, winter time in the Northern hemisphere when Europe's going to need even more gas for heating purposes. And we will too. You see what the appetite's going to be from the average American constituent and voter for just sending all this stuff over when we barely have enough for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I just don't see the. I just don't see this continuing. I think at some point, something's going to have to give, and basically, what it comes down to is a lot of people are going to have to tighten the energy belt. The economies are going to slow. Manufacturing is going to get shut in. There's all kinds of things that's going to supply chains are going to get hit even more. Things won't be shipped. Things won't be manufactured as much. And all this stuff that they talk about with, oh, energy prices can only go so high before there's a lack of demand. Oh, it's going to, you know, the cure for high oil prices is high oil prices, as they say. Yeah. (laughs) The problem is that's usually the cure when high oil prices lead to high development and more supply. And right now, globally... Is, that's a very anemic situation. Mm-hmm. Right now, the high prices aren't leading to higher supply. The high prices are a symptom of low supply to begin with. This is a whole different ballgame, something that's going to be a painful thing for people to live through. And, and whatever pain we have here, it'll probably be amplified across the Atlantic. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, people's morals are truly tested once you start reaching into their pockets. And speaking of tightening that energy belt, We're doing pretty good here, but we've got an article about Germany. This is from Oil Price, published on the 13th today, titled, Germany could spend $10 billion to bail out the expropriated ex-Gazprom unit. Here's the body. Germany could lend up to $10.4 billion, or about 10 billion euros, to bail out a former unit of Russia's Gazprom, which the German government expropriated earlier this year. Gazprom Germania GmbH was the German unit of Gazprom up until a few months ago before the German government placed Gazprom Germania under the trusteeship of the German energy regulator in April to ensure security of supply after Russia invaded Ukraine. Last month, Gazprom halted gas supply to Gazprom Germania in retaliation for Western sanctions as Russia imposed sanctions on Gazprom subsidiaries in Europe, banning them from supplying Russian gas. And the reason this is such a big problem This isn't some small portion of their energy grid, but this paragraph here. Gazprom Germania has several storage sites in Germany, including the biggest one in the country. Without financial support, the firm may be unable to fill the gas storage to levels Germany and the EU require before next winter to prevent gas shortages. So that's two for two on articles who are already looking towards the winter, and I don't really know what they expected here. This looks a lot like the people state of Mexico and Atlas Shrugged, just taking all those copper mines. And, well, Germany doesn't have the gas. Russia does, so it looks like they'll probably be spending all of that loan money in rubles to get the energy that they need because they they thought they could take a stand against the big bad guy. At least that's what it looks like from here. 
Yeah, and it's just it's just another sign of people do just they forget how dependent and interdependent they are on all different types of energy, especially the foundational energies for modern economy, the reliable energies, the energy dense energies, coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear could be in there, but nobody ever wants to talk about that. But the main thing is the hydrocarbon sphere. And you know, I haven't looked at a map here. I haven't you know, dive in deep on this, but I will tell you this much that's pretty easy to elicit from said article. Gazprom Germania's storage sites were plumbed up to receive gas from Russian pipelines. Okay, so if they are going to continue the operation of Gazprom Germania, it's probably going to necessitate the need for other routes to get the U.S. LNG from the tankers that are floating across the Atlantic get to those molecules offloaded and put into those storage sites. Those storage sites, you can't just, just so everybody knows, these storage sites, it's not like they're just tank batteries with a bunch of tanks sitting above the ground. Natural gas storage sites are underground. They're reservoirs with certain characteristics. There are wells with certain characteristics. There's certain depths, they can hold certain volumes, and they won't leak, or they leak very little. So those storage sites at Gazprom is a huge investment. It's not like you're just moving or building the tank. No. It is where it is, under the ground somewhere, probably in the middle of Germany, where there is a conducive underground reservoir Mm -hmm. for storing. So to put those assets to use for their intended purpose means you have to get those molecules to those assets. You can't move those assets. It's not that thing you move. You can find another one. Could take 10 years to develop it, though. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of geological work. Oh, yeah. So, you know, this is a real problem. They have this infrastructure for a storage facility. And Russia knows all of these things. There's nothing I'm saying here that anybody who has spent a minute in the energy industry doesn't really understand if they pay attention at all. Oh, look, they have all the storage sites so that they can fill up the reservoirs in the summertime, for example, and then have all that natural gas available for heating and and electrical generation in the winter or whatever the demand cycles are, right? You do have spikes in the summer for electrical use, but electricity could come from all kinds of sources. It could come from nuclear for France. It could come from coal for Germany. It could come from all kinds of things intermittently from wind and solar. But when it comes to heating, heating is going to be not a nuclear plant. It's going to be for your home, unless it's electrical heating. But if it's gas stoves and stuff like this, cooking and this, it's going to be a lot of gas demand, right? So where, how are you going to get, it's not just so simple as, well, we need to get new gas. There's a lot of complications when you disrupt energy sectors flows and the energy sector powers all other sectors uniformly mm-hmm. it makes modern life possible as we know it so this is just another example but hey don't you worry we can go on to the next article now Tavis. yep yeah we've got people who thought a little bit different than germany didn't stir the pot didn't shake the boat and things are working out well for them this is an oil price article from also today, the 13th, titled, India and China Take in Russian Oil Unwanted in the West. A couple bullet points at the top here. So far this year, India has now imported 
five times the amount of all Russian crude it bought in the entire year of 2021. So in half the time, what? five times more oil. It goes on. Even if that sounds big, China, however, overtook Germany as the largest importer of Russian crude oil anywhere in the world. Russia's likely getting more revenues from oil and gas now than before the war in Ukraine, even with the discounts. We go a little deeper into this article. Attracted by cheap prices, India and China continue to increase their imports of Russian crude, which is now mostly banned in the West. India, which wasn't a big buyer of Russia and oil until March of this year, has now imported five times the amount of all the Russian crude it bought in the whole 2021, according to commodity data from Kate Kipler. Kipler. So far this year, India has imported 60 million barrels of crude from Russia compared to the 12 million in last year alone. I mean, that that right there blows my mind. Germany's struggling to find energy, and then we've got India and China just probably swimming in it, taking baths in it, cooking with it at this point, because they have plenty. I mean, this is wow. just such a crazy contrast to the previous article. You've got someone telling Russia, you can't do this, we're going to expropriate this, this will be our asset, and still, that was ineffective. And then on the other side of the coin... We've got people who are excited to see cheap oil because that means for them cheap economic development, cheap increases in GDP, <coughs> cheap drivers for their engines of well, society, really. They're going to thrive. Wow. Well, this is becoming a common theme here. <laughs> India and China still buying, buying, buying that Russian crude mm -hmm. that we're sanctioning, 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 and they're getting it on discount. And they're setting up more routes and more pathways, everybody. They are, sending, they are setting up workarounds for physical transportation routes. They are setting up workarounds for insurances that aren't being provided on the tankers. They are setting up workarounds for business contracts. They are working around the entire thing. I mean, it's done, guys. At this point, if anybody wants to sell their energy and somebody else wants to buy it and the United States says, we don't want you doing that, they'd be like, whatever, look You've been doing it. It's fine. Right. Well, if this sounds know, risky mean, to anyone listening, I mean, consider this sentence from the same article. In total, Russia earned $97 billion in revenue from fossil fuel exports in just the first 100 days of war. So <laughs> it's a risk they're definitely willing to take. And yeah, of that, the, the EU imported 61%. That's right. And when the EU ends up dropping their imports by the end of the year... They're just going to end up finding homes for those crude barrels somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, they gave them a freaking roadmap. They gave them a timeline. It's like you're on the field of battle and you're like, hey, guys, we're going to vacate 90% of our troops from this field by December 31st. And we're going to do it in a measured fashion once so much of it every month. Oh, okay. So then, so you're going to stop buying 90% of my oil by the end of this year. And you're mm -hmm. going to pair it off in a measured approach that you've announced. Okay, so we're going to go out and find buyers to replace that 90% probably before the end of the year. <laughs> because we can sell it on sale. They're able to sell this stuff on discount. And they're mm -hmm. going to continue to do it. And... For them to be able to sell at whatever price that they want in rubles, doesn't they don't being outside of the U.S. dollar system means that Russia doesn't have to balance their accounts with U.S. Treasuries. They can't. They don't care. 
So they're just going to sell, sell, sell what other people need and get it in their own currency. And they're basically going to just tighten up everything and they're going to work with the people that they want to work with. And anybody else who doesn't want to work for them or work with them, either buying in their currencies or gold. That's what they've said. And anybody who's friendly to them, they can buy with their currencies or I think it was Bitcoin they announced before. Yeah. But either way, the point is that Russian crude is still flowing. So, you know, as we've done in the last couple of our episodes, you know, how do we shift it back here? We've, we've been over the pond there. Let's bring it back home with, uh, oh, a nice little quip from our fearless leader of the free world. June 11th, this is a great Forbes article here. Here's a quote from um, the president of the United States. Exxon made more money than God. That's what our president said. <laughs> but uh, the rest of the headline for this Forbes article is then Dash, but far less than Apple. That's why I chose so, to share this one because, sure, it's easy to have this ad hominem attack. Oil and gas, big oil has been a target of stupid uh, emotional arguments since probably the beginning of time. But we forget there's plenty of other people in industry like big tech who are also taking advantage. But, hey, that doesn't push a good narrative. <laughs> It's just disgusting to see how these people are. I mean, we have basically big tech's profit margins are three times higher than oil and gas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's this bar chart here in this Forbes article for those listening. ExxonMobil versus Apple quarterly net income. Okay. And just looking at these lines, you know, I'm just going to kind of walk back. I'm just so March of 20, June of 20, September of 20, Exxon lost money. December of 20, they had huge write downs <laughs> and lost something like 30, 20 billion dollars. I mean, basically 2020 was absolutely horrible. The most recent quarter, Exxon sitting in their net income of what? About five billion. Not much more than chart. that, yeah. And Apple is twenty-five billion. <laughs> yep. Wait a minute here. I mean, for an entire twelve-month period, Exxon lost money, and every single quarter, Apple was printing ten billion, ten billion, ten billion. And then at the end of the year of twenty twenty, when Exxon had all its write downs and lost. $20 billion in that quarter. That's when it was booked. Mm -hmm. Apple made nearly $30 billion. Yeah, but we can't use that to argue about how gas prices what are big text faults. picture? <laughs> I don't have to buy a new iPhone every week or every month. But I do need to fill up my tank if I'm going to go out into society, mm -hmm. you're going to get mad at a company that provides an essential resource for modern society. You're going to get mad that they made a couple billion dollars after losing tens of billions of dollars for the last year before that. Mm -hmm. The hypocrisy is disgusting. Oh, it it's absolutely disgusting. And let's blame big oil. Mm-hmm. In the same quote, I believe he made several comments about in Exxon, it's time for you to pay your taxes. 
which, again, a foolish argument. I don't know why that's being weaponized and put out there in front of the public, but if anything, this is just even more damaging to our setup right now. Energy prices will go higher. We'll take advantage, well, we'll punish the companies who are taking advantage of the American people. Eh, I mean, this, this article says it well. The point here by comparing Apple is to simply show that the outrage isn't actually over some insane profit level. It's about perception that ExxonMobil is taking some unfair advantage. I wonder how President Biden would quantify Apple's $25 billion for the quarter. Five times more than God? <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's foolish stuff. It's absolutely foolish. I mean, this is just stupid. Let's just blame everybody else. Why don't you look in the mirror, buddy? Oh, so what's our fearless leader going to do? Ah, what are we doing over here? Sam B.C., June 9th, 2022. Biden announces standards to make electric vehicle charging stations accessible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see what they're doing, right? That. We have to develop some infrastructure anyways, but then you get into the numbers and you go, oh, oh, no. Just <laughs> a joke. Let's see. You know, you know, you know, I mean, why don't you point out some aspects of the article? First? Sure thing. I'll hit on the numbers so we can get a bit of a quantitative analysis. Here's the first paragraph. The Biden administration this week proposed new standards for its program to build a national network of 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations by 2030. The administration has touted EVs as more affordable for Americans and gas-powered cars and has set a goal of 50% electrical vehicle sales by the end of this decade, 2030. Earlier this year, the White House introduced a plan to allocate $5 billion to states to fund EV chargers during the next five years. The plan is part of the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, which includes $7.5 billion to build a national network of EV charging stations. I mean, this is... This is a massive project, uh, which is cool. It, the scale is very exciting, but shouldn't we take a stretch of some very heavily trafficked interstate connecting two cities and launch a small-scale investigation rather than just balls to the wall, half a million new units plopped right down? I, I don't know. It seems a bit poorly planned to me. Yeah, I mean, for those people who believe that these projects work, you know, they'll cite things like utilities or the interstate system. I'm going to be very clear with everybody here. The reason that there is a fueling station within a one or two mile radius of everybody who lives in any semi-populated area is because the vast majority of those stations are privately owned enterprises. They're like franchises, everybody. Most gasoline stations, most fueling stations, convenience stores are chains that are either a franchise system chain or their sole proprietor mom paws or both. They put something up on a corner because they think they can drive demand over there. They're taking their personal risks. That's why there's fueling stations and convenience stores everywhere you look. I would like to wonder why you wouldn't just give incentives to the people who already have fueling stations to pop up EVs. I mean, maybe that's part of what this is, but it smells to me that it's going to be some government plan from on high to put them every so many miles. I could see a bunch of charging stations, for example, off of I-25 in Wyoming where they will never get used, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, they won't, mm. except for somebody from Colorado who got lost. Um, <laughs> and then a bunch of 
charging stations part of this network in urban areas, it's going to be, that won't be enough of them for the demand, right? I just, I look at stuff like this and I think to myself, what are you trying to accomplish here? Are you trying to, you're trying to just make it so well, if we have charging stations everywhere, everybody's going to want an electric car. Well, isn't the beauty of electric car is that you can plug it in. Mm -hmm. You can plug it in at home, right? Yep. You think it's going to be cheap or accessible to plug in your char or convenient when you're on a road trip? Mm. I doubt it. So, look, I don't want to get into a big old how do you do about why I think (laughs) this may not work, but I will tell you some facts. People don't like to sit and wait for an hour or two while car charges when they're trying to get from point A to point B. They don't. One of the main things that they always touted about an electric car is that you could plug it in at home. So why do you need all these fueling stations? Mm-hmm. It just the whole thing just fails to pass muster. You know, to me, I don't get it. I just you know, and this all. In the backdrop of our next article, (laughs) why don't you read that headline for us? Oh, this is from mining.com, one I found on LinkedIn. And the headline is, as demand for rare earths rises, the world's biggest producer might stop exporting them. And uh, if you don't know, the United States is not the world's biggest exporter. So even if you thought, oh, Anthony's full of it. Oh, all of these points. That's a fallacy. That's a far stretch of the truth. Well, even so. China, this is from the article, the world's biggest producer of magnet rare earth oxides, could stop exporting the group of minerals within the next decade due to increasing domestic demand and a shortage in global supply. And so basically this article goes on to describe that China's realizing they control the goods. They can make a whole lot of great tech, magnets, renewable energy infrastructure to sell to the rest of us as long as they just go, oh boy, supply is short we got to keep this to us unless you're willing to pay four or five times the price for it. Then I'm sure a deal could be reached. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who aren't that familiar, rare earths, as they call them, they're not all that rare as in that you can't find them. They're just not the most common metallurgies that you would find in your average stuff all the time, but they are heavily used with, EVs, a lot of the green stuff uses a lot rare earth minerals, okay? Um, The reason why China has so many of them is because they didn't care about having a bunch of strip mines, everybody. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to open up the state of Nevada and make it strip mine central, everybody... I guarantee you, you would have a lot of lithium and cobalt and all these other things would be here available in the United States. But the average person here probably doesn't want to look out their window and see a strip mine. Mm -hmm. And this article goes on a little bit more. Uh, There's a company, Adamus Intelligence, and their founder and independent researcher said, if we consider that China is responsible for about 90% of the world's neomagnet production today, and 70% of the demand for those magnets exists in China, and then we consider around one-third of the market to be unsatisfied by 2035, we can quickly begin to see the calculus that China's going to be faced with. 
Do they sell their magnets to the domestic market to empower automakers to create their EVs? Or do they simply extort the magnets to a fridge manufacturer in Nebraska or Turkey? I think the decision is clear, he added. That's right. And this whole thing circles all the way around to the beginning. Lack of energy security. If your plan to increase energy security is to increase electric vehicle fleet sizes, you're helping secure energy security. Nope. You still have other countries that you need. Mainly, we need other countries because we don't want it in our backyard. It's not that we don't have all these minerals. It's not that we don't have all these energy sources. We have them. We have an abundance of them in this country. What we also have is the attitude is, I don't want that here. I want to look and see pretty. (laughs) I, I do too, everybody. But I'm trying not to be naive as to what powers my life and where I get it from. Okay? So if your big thing, your big shtick about, no, this whole Russia thing is even more proof that we need to get off of fossil fuels. First of all, you're still using the hydrocarbon. That hasn't stopped. Did you type that on your iPhone? (laughs) Well, you're using hydrocarbons. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Were you wearing any clothes that you bought from a store? They were probably manufactured with polyesters. They were probably shipped with diesel. They were properly wrapped in plastic. Hello? Hydrocarbon, hydrocarbon, hydrocarbon. All over the board. You're using them. They're natural. They're by definition organic. You're made of them. I made of them. Everything that's ever been alive has been made of them. Everything you freaking use, touch, or interface with in modern society is powered by and or composed with in part or entirely by hydrocarbons. That is reality. Reality. That is not fantasy land. Okay? That is reality. Come down to Earth. If you're worried about Earth, come down and be part of the freaking group that's here. That's all I got to say about that. It drives me nuts. We talk about it over and over again, but it's a Mm -hmm. freaking fact. You don't like it? Look it up. You really don't like fossil fuels? Then go live in a hut at the top of a mountain and build it with handmade tools. Have fun. Mm -hmm. You can live that way. I doubt you'd really want to. And uh, for those of you who may be here for your first episode, yeah, a lot of the stuff, I know it comes off as crazy. It's not something that's published in the normal headlines, but... For those who have been with us for the two and a half months we've been doing this, some of the predictions have come to fruition. So keep an open mind, do some more research for yourself, and go through the articles we've talked about. They're always linked right below. We want you to challenge us. You can always email us at podcast at rarepetro.com if you've got something to add or something to correct. So please, let us know. Other than that, we put out plenty of other content. Follow us on LinkedIn. Go to www.rarepetro.com. And this has been Tavis Killian and Anthony McDaniels with another episode. Till we see you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Tavis.